Welcome to That Feels Like Home, a podcast by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, MODA, reaching you from Middlesex University in London. I'm Anna Baeza, and I'll be hosting the second season to explore the multiple stories around home in the current COVID crisis. This time, we're recording in less favourable conditions from our homes, so please bear with us if the sound isn't always of studio quality. And in this season, I'll be talking with historians, anthropologists, activists and practitioners to reflect on the many changes brought about this pandemic on our homes. As always, we draw inspiration from our collections to rethink the past through the lens of the present. My home feels somewhere between extreme safety during this time period and also claustrophobic. So it's somewhere between this feeling of being able to retreat, being able to hide, being able to kind of contain yourself within the walls, but also noise. And the fact that for me, the noise has made my home feel smaller and smaller because of neighbor noise and things like that. Our homes are sensory spaces. We engage with them through touch, sound, taste, smell, vision. We make sense of them through objects as varied as furniture, electronic devices, or personal souvenirs, but also in the ways that we navigate these spaces and the atmospheres that we create in them. So although we usually associate home with a building, and we've been talking about this in other episodes about the importance of the physicality of these spaces, there are other less tangible ways in which we make home. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, how our homes feel. And with us to discuss this is Sarah Pink, Professor and Director of the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University, Australia. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. And Sarah has over 20 years of experience of developing innovative ethnographic and design anthropological research into everyday life in the home internationally, England, Spain, Australia, Brazil and Indonesia. And she has authored many publications, including the books Home Truths from 2004, Situating Everyday Life from 2012 and Making Homes from 2017, all of which focus on homes. So it's obvious why we would have invited Sarah to come and speak in the podcast, as much of her interest has been in how material, human and other flows become entangled in the making of home as a place. We'll be thinking about how objects, textures, movements and routines constitute the home as a sensory environment and connect this to what we've seen during this long period of lockdown. Of course, experiences are wide ranging and varied and Sarah's research across all these different geographical sites points to the ways in which these experiences of home are also vastly different due to different types of housing that we have, whether we live in cities, suburbs, the countryside, and also to varying cultural relationships with the indoors and the outdoors. But that won't stop us from discussing a bit more speculatively, perhaps, how the sensory realm of the home has been and is being reshaped in this period of lockdown. We don't yet know the implications of this, but we can think about what things have been in the past and what needs doing to better design for the future. So I'd like to start by asking you to define a concept that you use a lot when you write about home in your research, which is the concept of atmosphere. Oh, thank you, Anna. Yeah, atmosphere, I think, is, is fundamental to the way in which we experience our homes. And, and for me, atmosphere brings together um, two of the, the aspects of home that I've always been interested in. So I've always been interested in people's emotional experiences of home. 
you know, what does home mean to us emotionally? What memories does home evoke? Our everyday practices or everyday routines and activities, something like doing the laundry, cleaning the bathroom, those very mundane tasks, they very often kind of invoke memories of the past, memories of other relatives, other people who have undertaken those tasks. And um, even though they sound very boring, they can be immensely meaningful and emotive. But at the same time, the experience of those tasks and again, of course, the experience of home and the spaces of the home is very sensory experience. You began by mentioning, you know, the, the tactile, the olfactory, the smell of home, the feel of home, the, the visual appearance of home. And, um, you know, of course, the sound of home is, is absolutely fundamental to the way we experience our home environments as well. So for me, thinking about the atmosphere of home is a little bit about bringing together those two aspects of our experiences of home. Um, the emotional and the sensory, and and actually thinking about this question of what does the home feel like? So when I start most of my research projects around um, people's experience of everyday life in the home, I'll actually take them into a room and say, well, what do you need to do to make this room feel right? And that's for me is is the, the key thing. How do we go about making our homes feel right, feel comfortable, feel familiar in our everyday life circumstances? What do we need to do? And again, that really comes off down often to the very mundane tasks. But those tasks enable and also the people in our homes. The other aspect of it is, is, the, is the social. Our homes are not just sensory and emotional. They're social spaces very often as well. So what people, what processes, what smells, what sensory experiences, what emotional feelings do we need to have to make our homes feel right? And that leads me on to atmosphere. So if we think about those different things, the social, the sensory and the emotional dimensions of home, actually all coming together to create a particular feeling, they also create a particular atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And the atmosphere of home is an ongoingly changing dimension of the way the home feels. It's something that we make and that we maintain as, as the day goes on. And often our everyday routines and activities shift the atmosphere of home. So we might want to think, for example, about the difference between the daytime home and the nighttime home. When most people go to bed at night, at least in the UK and in other some other countries as well, they might go through their home switching certain things off and switching certain things on. Um, the nighttime home has its own life. It might be when the washing machine comes on. It might be when all the lights go off. It might be when the doors and the windows are all locked or when some of them are opened. It might be when some lights come on. When people sleep, certain things are there waiting to be reactivated in the morning. The atmosphere of the home at night is very different from the atmosphere of the home in the morning once everybody's getting up and it becomes much more dynamic. Socially, if you're living in a home with multiple people, it will become much more active sensorially it will become much more active you may have the smell of brewing coffee um, the smell of somebody who's just come out of the shower all of those different sensory dimensions of of home start to come alive the radio might be on music might be playing so we live in this ongoing atmosphere of home the atmosphere of home is always there it doesn't stop it just continually changes and shifts in terms of, of what we're doing in our homes and how we, we remake it and reconstitute it as we go along. 
Yeah, I, I really like this this way that you're talking about the atmosphere of home as, as this, in some ways, unfinished or the ongoingness of it, that it's not something that we can think of as predetermined, but it's something that's continuously shaped and being reshaped. And I, this seems to be particularly relevant now, perhaps, the way in which we live in our homes has changed more or less fundamentally for, for lots of people. So I wanted to ask you about how, you know, as people are living together or alone in isolation, how they might be working out those new rhythms in being domestically with each other in, you know, those repetitive but sometimes variable activities, how they may have been impacted by the new conditions of living and being at home all the time. And and that obviously links to the question of atmosphere, doesn't it? Yes, I mean, we can absolutely certainly expect new atmospheres of home to emerge under these dramatically new circumstances. I and, and nobody actually could answer the question of what the impact of staying at home and, and COVID-19 has been on the way in which people experience their homes because nobody's actually ever, nobody's completed the research that we'd really need to have done to be able to answer that question properly. But we can be very sure that the atmospheres of home have, have been changing, that it will feel different to have, for example, you know, the, the whole, everybody who lives in a home, um, be that a home share or a family home, um, to have multiple people at home together all day, every day, will obviously change the feel of the home immensely. And, and that will change the atmosphere of home, the social atmosphere of the home, obviously will be um, really, really strongly impacted. The sensory experience of home will, will again change because the, the sounds, even the sounds of other people moving around, the noises that people make, um, the music they might want to listen to, the technologies they're using, that whole kind of soundscape, if you want to call it that, of home, could shift as well. And also, of course, the, the atmosphere of home is not necessarily always positive. You mentioned a few points at the beginning about inequalities and difference and that every home will, will be different. Every home will have its unique atmosphere, which will be maintained and reproduced or change in its own unique way. And we know that the atmosphere of home is not always necessarily happy. Um, mm -hmm. It's not necessarily sensorially enriching, and it might not be socially fulfilling either. But my understanding of atmosphere is that atmosphere is not limited to a firework display or, um, or amazing music concert or a, a wonderful piece of theatre. Um, atmosphere is always, always with us. And it can be a very good indicator of how people are feeling. It's very much constituted as, as, as something that's felt and experienced, but it's not something that descends upon us. It's something that humans with the things around us, not just the objects in our homes, but also the other species who, with whom we live, our cats, our dogs, our goldfish, our whatever animals people, people share their lives with. Um, but those atmospheres are not necessarily always positive or happy. So we need to really kind of consider the real implications of kind of putting atmosphere at the centre of our understanding of home, because it can tell us very much about the, the differing um, meanings and, and feelings of home. You're listening to That Feels Like Home. I'm Anna Baeza and I'm talking to Sarah Pink from Monash University. We've been talking about atmosphere so far, and now we're going to move on to the idea of how we experience home through touch. And to preface that, here's a snippet from an interview we did with one of our listeners about touch in the home in the context of the pandemic. So it was really weird to be this kind of intruder in your own house and you can't touch anything. 
you can't have anyone around. Like I think it really changes the way you see spaces and the way you feel about every object you own because you feel like it's suddenly so complicated to do things because you touch three things at once without even realizing it. And suddenly everything is loaded with meaning. It really felt this way, like I was alienated from my own domestic space. So it's, it's a really privileged outlook, obviously, but it's the way I felt about, <laughs> about this experience. You were mentioning soundscapes, and that just made me think about the ways in which different senses might be engaged in the way that we're living in our homes at the moment. And precisely touch is something that I've been thinking about quite a lot because maybe because I'm a curator and so I like sort of touching things and handling objects and they help me in my understanding of them. And obviously our hands have become quite an interesting kind of site of of experience at the moment in the sense that on the one hand we've instructed to be observing them all the time and to you know be washing them on the other side, I've been also talking to friends that have been describing a much more haptic, as in tactile, investigation of their domestic spaces at the moment. And whether that's been through realizing bits in the house where dust collects and, and they hadn't seen that before. So areas of the house were previously overlooked, um, touching things more, maybe because there is some ways in which we can't engage with touch. So maybe we start touching other parts of our environment. So I wonder if you have some reflections on, on this, because I know you've done some research around touch and hands more in a healthcare context, but what what do you think touch represents at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think more, more broadly, yeah, touch represents a whole range of different kind of aspects and feelings um, in our lives. I mean, touch, as you said, yeah, has, has come to be much more suspicious in recent times, whereas, um, but touch is also a mode of caring. Mm -hmm. So I think it's um, I think it creates some really interesting contradictions and complexities in the way in which we we might use our hands in public on the one hand. But then when we come into our, our homes and spend more time in our homes, and it doesn't surprise me that you say that, that you and, and other people you've been speaking to find that they're encountering the textures of their homes in, in new ways. And of course, if we spend more time in our homes, we're likely to touch them more often. <laughs> and, and we, but we are, yes, likely to in, encounter and, and to scrutinise the, the surfaces that we we come up close to as well, because and to, and to notice things that we would never normally notice, um, simply because of that that intensified kind of encounter um, with those things that are always on our everyday spaces, but that we don't always necessarily notice. Um, if I take that back to my research and my mode of, of doing research with people in their homes, I think there's a lot of resonance, actually, with the way in which um, the pe yourself and the people you're talking about are, are developing these much deeper reflections on the, the tactile nature of their homes and their experience of home. It means that you're able to to actually kind of gain that more kind of reflexive understanding of of what what those different textures mean to you and what they remind you of and to think through what you're learning maybe about yourself and your environments. Um, and that's precisely how I do research. Um, when I do research with people in their homes, as I said before, I, I take them into a room usually initially and I ask them what they need to do to make that room feel right. I try to create what I call kind of intensive encounters. And these kind of intensive and intense encounters. So the idea of the kind of intense and intensive encounters, we really come up close 
to their homes together. And um, instead of me observing them doing what they might normally do in their homes, we explore the home and we look at the detail. And um, I ask them questions about how they usually do things and ask them to show me the detail of an activity they might usually perform. But when they do that, I might ask them questions about it and I might ask them to reflect on that detail. So I think that what you and, and your, your friends that you've been talking about are doing is there's actually something similar because you have the opportunity to have a, a much closer encounter with your environment and to kind of bring to the surface some of that invisible knowledge that you might never talk about, might never reveal to yourself or reveal to others. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there is, uh, I think this this new situation has opened up um, a process of reflection, I think, about mm. what the domestic mm. environment means. And in a way, I think it relates to something else I wanted to ask you about, which relates to light um, in the home, because we have some objects or catalogues for la- lamps uh, from the early 20th century in the collection, which show all the associations of lighting in the early 20th century in the UK and those discourses about health and hygiene, perhaps because there were diseases such as tuberculosis that were still part of of city life at that time. So Mm -hmm. many designers drew upon light fittings to emphasize the difference between these new products and the older Victorian versions of these lamps, which would have been precisely collecting lots of dust, being very richly ornamented and and by implication unhealthy. So this makes me think of how lighting also maybe sits in within these discussions around health and the home, but maybe also other issues. Obviously, light in other contexts is used to create a, a space of comfort or intimacy. I'm thinking of the uh, Danish Hugo, uh, that might not be exactly the correct pronunciation, but this is very specific word to the Danish language that mm. is also a creation of a certain atmosphere, whilst then light is used in other places to suggest religious devotion or belief or to create that sort of atmosphere and elsewhere also maybe a sense of hospitality and, again, speculatively, whether there might be something at the moment um, in terms of how lighting might be coming up in discourse around COVID? Mm, yes, I mean, I think that um, light is, um, yeah, it, it's an essential aspect of the way atmosphere is, is created in the home. And um, I think, the, you know, yeah, the Danish example is fascinating. I spent some time in, in Aarhus um, a couple of years ago, and I was, um, I was so impressed by the way that the Danes... Um, create the lighting and an atmosphere in their homes through lighting it's so, absolutely amazing and, and very different from um, all of the the other countries that I've, I've spent time in but I think for me one of my main interests in lighting in the home has been um, in the way in which the way in which light was used in, in my earlier research to create the, the nighttime home whether that meant that um, some lights were put on at night time or lights are switched off at night time. Um, but to create a particular aesthetic that that represented that particular kind of stage and atmosphere in, in the everyday routines. Light and, and, and not just um, artificial light, of course, um, daylight as well is, um, I think, is a, is a very important value for the home as well. And not only for the home, but for a sense of homeliness. So I think that natural light and artificial light in the home, but also in places where mm. a sense of home or homeliness is, is generated and intentionally generated, they both play a very important role in that generation of a feeling of home. And 
Um, I think you touched on this um, in your introduction to the talk as well, whereby we know that home is not just made in, in a building, in a house, in an apartment or in, in a kind of household context, but a sense of home is can be constituted across the whole range of different um, places, which might be in care environments, it might be in um, you know, family homes, but it might be in many other contexts um, where the kind of familiar familiar atmospheres and feelings and, and sensory and emotional um, dimensions um, of home are, are, are reproduced or generated other than in a family home. And lighting, I think, is, is very much a part of that. So moving on, Sarah, I'd like to talk about domestic routines, which is a subject you've written about quite a bit as paths that people make as they move through their homes and which are quite important for the making of that domestic atmosphere. And if I speak just from personal experience, there is a safety that comes from those routines and and there's something familiar about them. But I think in having to spend so much time in the house, sometimes they have felt a bit more oppressive, if that makes sense. So then I've maybe tried to introduce changes mm-hmm. into that script of the home, not always successfully, also <laughs> not just because of myself, but also because at the end of the day, you do share these spaces with other people, whether it's family or friends. So there's this encounter with other bodies that are also having their routines disrupted. So I think there's an intensification about the way in which we maybe become more aware of the routines that we have, but also how we can't sustain them either. I, I don't know if this makes sense in the yes, context think, of your research. Yeah. I think what my research has taught me is that we, we live through our routines and we create our atmospheres of home through our routines. And as we've been saying, we don't really know what other people are doing in their homes and how they might be shifting or changing their routines or how their routines might have been disrupted. I guess the way I can think about it, though, is from a different perspective in terms of what I would advise people to do during a context like this. What I think might help would be to actually ensure that you do establish and maintain routines of home that are meaningful to you. So it could even be a case of reflecting on what your everyday routines are usually like and then considering how they might become and be meaningful within a new situation and new context. Um, Routines are very reassuring. They're very familiar. We improvise as we carry them out to make them shift and change as we need to. I know that the idea of a routine often sounds boring, you know, in my my research. Um, one of my first projects, I remember participants, some of them would say, oh, you know, we don't have, we're not governed by routine. I will not let my life be governed by routine. Um, but very often once people had kids, um, they, they were pretty happy um, to have a routine to just keep everything under control. But I think there's some very interesting cultural questions there as well, because that early project showed me that actually British people, you know, tended very much more to reject the idea of having a, a routine, although they all had them and they all carried them out in, in such mm. ways that they were able to kind of feel as if they had accomplished things and were familiar with what was happening. But the Spanish people who participated in, in my research were, were all very um, comfortable with the routines that they had and with the idea of having a routine and having a a very much more structured everyday life. So there were some very kind of strong cultural differences there um, in relation to the way that people actually thought everyday life should be structured and and conducted, even though, as I said, the the routines were equally evident in, in both cultural contexts. 
So I think that thinking about, you know, future situations where we might be staying at home again, then routines should be fundamental and, and maybe being reflexive about our routines and thinking about them um, could be something that would really help. Yes, I mean, one of the routines that I've been particularly interested in, and we've actually done research about across several different different cultural contexts where we've looked at this in um, in Brazil and in the UK in particular, and in Sweden, actually, um, are the routines that people go through in the morning when they get up and um, when they're preparing to get ready to leave the home. So obviously, in a, in a COVID-19 stay-at-home context, that's one of the particular routines that most people will, will be shifting and will be developing in different ways. So there may be certain similar things, obviously, that people will still be preparing to, to get ready for work, to work from home. But certain aspects of those routines, obviously, um, will change. You know, one of the things that I actually have found fascinating have been some of the, the advice that's been given um, to people about working from home that I've read on various um, social media channels you know so so there's this kind of one type of advice that that advises people to get ready for work and to dress for work um, mm-hmm. as they would normally and um, so for me I think that's a, that's a really interesting as a piece of advice <laughs> um, because of the the kind of um, the routines that it's actually suggesting that people should maintain apart from the kind of visual appearance that it's also suggesting that people should maintain and the the way that that both of those things actually connect to that sense of the familiar and maintaining things that people already feel familiar and comfortable with although we're in a time of crisis so the interesting you know as, a, as an anthropologist for me the, that that's one interesting question that kind of discourse about maintaining the familiar and how to do it through the visual appearance and through routine. But um, I think for me, the other aspect that would be fascinating as an anthropologist, of course, to then to understand how and why some people are following those kinds of um, procedures and and how some people aren't. And, um, you know, how how people would actually articulate um, their own understandings of what they might be doing. You're listening to That Feels Like Home. In this episode, Home Senses, we're exploring the sensory aspects of home life. I'm Anna Vaitha, and my guest for this episode is Sarah Pink from Monash University, an anthropologist who researches domestic life. So far, we've been discussing aspects of the sensory experience of home, such as touch and domestic routines. But now we're going to move on to talking about gender in the home and some of the ways in which we experience domestic time, especially in the context of the COVID lockdown. On the subject of routines, there was something else I wanted to to think about, which links to some of the earlier work that you've done in Home Truths, in which you were considering the gendered routinization of activities, I guess, in the home. And, and you know, what the situation is put into relief is the way in which often the burden of domestic work or the routines associated with domestic work have tended to fall on women primarily. So I, I wonder if you had some thoughts on that in terms of how routines are being restructured in, in the house and, and they don't seem to be happening in very equal ways. Yes, I mean, I, I guess my answer to that question again would be, you know, we really don't know at the moment how those gendered um, roles are, are playing out. The research that I did um, in the Home Truth, that I wrote about in the Home Truth book, did show that that men and women approach doing the housework um, in very different ways, really following kind of very masculine narratives sometimes for men about doing the housework, you know, seeing it as a as a quest 
almost, you know, like an Indiana Jones type adventure <laughs> where they would encounter bacteria and um, <laughs> all kinds of other, you know, challenges that they had to overcome. <laughs> Which which was great fun to research um, and, and to write about, and, and men tended also to improvise in really curious ways sometimes, and they did their housework. And I guess my insights around that is that any existing gendered ways of approaching the world and, and doing things are likely to become part of the way that people are living in their homes during the times of COVID when they're, they're staying at home. Um, we don't know yet exactly how that's going to play out. I think the kind of the the consensus that um, is likely to emerge amongst academics is that um, yes, women are likely to be doing the majority of the domestic work and, and childcare at home um, and at a very general level. And um, but we have to wait to see if um, you know the statistics actually um, that's played out and when the when the research is finally completed and, and done, you know, I'm, I don't think we should generalise either. I think there will be some really, really, really interesting cases of um, of men engaging in, in really interesting ways um, with the housework and with childcare. And there will be some equally interesting examples of when they didn't. So so let's, let's wait and see what the research turns up, because I think that it might also kind of bring to the surface some really fascinating kind mm. of... Um, new possibilities. You know, we we do need to see this current situation um, as a kind of living lab. Um, yeah. Some very interesting new configurations will emerge. We're living some very intense times in which I think that some new practices um, and routines and ways of living in the home in gendered ways will will come to the surface. Whether or not they will continue to be maintained afterwards. Um, we don't know. But I think we should see this as a, I mean, not a welcome situation at all, but as a, as something like a test site in which we can actually gain some new understandings of how some things, some future, some of some future possibilities and some new configurations, which we may never have been able to imagine before. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really like the way that you're talking about this living lab, I think you said, or this moment as as mm-hmm. a moment of possibility and and for um, exploring the ways in which some relationships or or routines or ways of being in in the home are being reconfigured or restructured. and and that leads me to another question away from from thinking about gender, but a theme that I think is quite important and that you've written about, which is this idea of of time in the home, of domestic temporality being in in the home within this space um time for me anyway and for other people that i've been talking about has been experienced in quite different ways we were talking about routines earlier and the advice of having regular routines partly i suppose also to work through that feeling of unstructured time you know there, there seemed to be also mm-hmm. this distortion of time where some, sometimes time seemed to be passing really fast or really slowly and people have been commenting on the fact that lockdown seems to have granted us all this time, but actually hasn't in a way. And and there's all those, you know, projects that you thought you would do that you would undertake at some point, but there isn't actually that much time. So I wonder if you have some thoughts on this, on this notion of domestic time and and how in the conditions that we've been living, what's coming out of this situation? 
Yeah, I think that um, time is a super interesting concept through which to think about this. And um, I think there are two ways we might want to think about time in this context and the the COVID-19 context and in the context of, you know, spending so much time at home. And um, I would kind of translate that a little bit into how we think about futures. So we can think about our, our near futures, our immediate futures, and also about our far futures. And once we do that, it gives us a way in which to kind of connect some of those things that we've been talking about, about routines, about emotions, um, and about the way we're kind of experiencing these new ways of living our, our everyday lives, and um, to connect them up to um, to time and the way time passes, and, and the way we move through time, and, and to think of ourselves as, you know, continually moving forward through time, partly through our everyday routines in the home, Um, But also partly about the way that we feel about things, which is also connected to domestic atmospheres, of course. So I think one of the the interesting ways to think about the near future is through anticipatory concepts. Um, And trust is a really great concept to actually think about how we go about moving forward in our everyday lives. And trust is is a concept that um, is associated with those feelings of confidence and and feelings of familiarity. And... um, one of the reasons why we can go ahead and just perform our everyday routines in, in the way that we do is because we actually know how to do them. We trust that we know more or less what's going to happen next. Um, we don't have to be concerned or worried about how we're going to use any of the technologies that we use in our routines. We, we trust that that they will do what we think they're going to do. We trust that the things that we do in our routines will have the outcomes that we expect them to have. So that's very reassuring. And um, this enables us to continue moving forward and going on in our everyday lives. And one of the things that um, those everyday routines actually does for us and, and the feelings of trust that we can have in them is it stops us from feeling anxious. So trust and anxiety are a really interesting pair of concepts because because we can trust in our, our everyday lives and routines and that will play out pretty much in the way we think that they they, they should. And then we don't actually worry about what's going to happen next. So any of those anxieties that we might normally have, or we, we might not normally have, I guess, um, they're kind of concealed and hidden because the routines that we have actually just make them evaporate and make them vanish. So once our everyday routines are kind of disrupted and we, we don't necessarily know what's going to happen next, we don't necessarily know what tomorrow is going to be like, then because tomorrow is, is now an unknown, because m- many of the things that we depended on to make tomorrow feel OK have actually vanished. Then the everyday routines that we, we usually performed that made us feel confident and comfortable actually don't necessarily work for us anymore. When we first went into lockdown, you know, I, I, I felt very stressed. Um, I didn't really know why I should actually feel stressed because um, it didn't feel but I, I realised, though, that it was because that I, I was in a, a situation of, of, of great uncertainty where I, I kind of knew that everything would be OK and that um, I would be able to cope with the next day perfectly well. But I didn't actually know what was going to happen. And I think that that's what many people have been kind of experiencing is that that kind of um, loss of being able to trust that we 
from our everyday routines and that tomorrow will will work out as planned because we don't actually really know what tomorrow is going to be like. But then as time goes on, when you're in lockdown, then you, you do start to know what tomorrow will be like and you start to be able to prepare for tomorrow just as you've prepared for tomorrow in the past. So I think those kinds of anticipatory concepts are very, very important for us in our everyday lives because we are actually continually moving into situations Well, of course, in normal circumstances, we don't really know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we Mm -hmm. think we do. But the other thing that changes in terms of time as well are the ways that we actually anticipate the further away futures. Those things that we we, um, hoped would happen, um, those things that we were excited about, like having a birthday party at home or or going on a trip, all of those things um, also became incredibly uncertain at the same time. So when we start to kind of reflect on time, then those feelings of disorientation then are very much about how we're planning for our near future and how we're planning for our further, further away future. So our sense of time and and anticipation, what we're anticipating and, and how we can anticipate and how we can plan just becomes completely disrupted. So I'd like to move on to discuss about how new ways of feeling at home intertwine with how digital technologies are increasingly part of our everyday lives. And this has become especially acute now in COVID-19. I mean, we already had screens around us, but now that's the main and primary form of engagement with anyone outside our homes. And you've written how we come to know and feel with media, effectively and physical, in diverse ways. And especially, you've been interested in how media engage for effective affective and embodies ways of making the home feel right and that's an expression that has already come up a few times in in the episode so in light of covid i was interested how you thought media might be implicating and shifting everyday ecologies of of home yes i think that um clearly people are are using um digital media in their homes Maybe in, in, in new ways, particularly to work from home um, and, and potentially in other new ways during this crisis. Again, it's something that we, we need to research thoroughly and to gain thorough understanding of. So digital media are really kind of shifting the way in which we experience our homes um, when we work from home. And we, we can see how that's happening and, and the projects that I'm, I'm already involved in to a certain extent. But digital media are becoming, you know, part of our homes and have become part of our homes and in kind of very complex ways now. And the next thing that we really need to look at is the role that more intelligent um, home technologies are are taking, are playing in in our everyday lives. So I think that leads me into another project that I'm involved in. This project is a project that um, we're we're doing here in the Emerging Technologies Lab at Monash University in Australia, and that's the Intelligent Home Solutions for Independent Living Project. In that project, we're working with a non-profit organisation called McLean Care. And on this project, which is funded by the Department of Health here in Australia. And what's very interesting about this project is that we're actually looking at how smart home technologies are being used by older people and their implications for um, their kind of ongoing independence and uh, their well-being at home as well. So this is a really exciting project because it's actually given us the opportunity to do research with older people while they're participating in in a trial of smart home technology. So they've actually had Google Home and voice assistants and smart lighting 
and automated vacuum cleaners and smart kettles and, and those kinds of things installed into their homes. And our research is actually working with them as they've been learning how to use them and, and their understanding their experiences of them. And also, of course, the, the independence and well-being benefits which might come from their use of them. Um, as well as some of the very interesting experiences and interactions that they've been having with Google Home and the way they've been encountering this whole kind of quite high-tech um, smart home environment. I think that, um, yes, we, we will be able to learn some really interesting things relating to to the kind of staying at home context as well from this kind of project, because um, I think we'll be able to learn specifically about how older people are able to use these technologies in relation to other services that they might access in the home. And also, yeah, how independence and being able to kind of continue to live in your own home could be connected to having new kinds of technological support and new connections that you can potentially make um, through those technologies and, and through using voice assistance. But on the other hand, I don't think that we should see technology as necessarily being the solution for anybody in a kind of COVID-19 stay-at-home environment. Mm. I think we need to really distinguish between how we use technology in a kind of what used to be normal context and the way in which we use technology in a, in a pandemic context. And then we need to be, I think, very clear on the things that technology doesn't replace. And, and very, very importantly, and we need to be very clear that one of the things that's been taken away by social distancing is, is the social dimension of, of our life, that face-to-face social dimension, um, those accidental encounters with people, those chats that you might have at work in the corridor, you know, the, the people you might bump into when, you, when you're out, and, and the sitting around together, just, just chatting and talking in, in the way that you do in face-to-face contexts. So I think we need to always contextualise the new uses of technology in mm. the COVID context as being part of the specific COVID context and not being some and being something that that we're being that we're using in a, in a very particular version of the world well yeah and i think there's this whole question of how far how pervasive do these technologies become in our lives after lockdown and i'm thinking here of i mean the writings of jonathan crary who writes you know from not from an anthropological perspective i guess more sort of critical history theory, how contemporary technological culture has colonized, I guess we can say almost every aspect of our life. And recently how we've been hearing of potential plans for high tech companies like Amazon Mm. to embed these technologies even more consistently and deeply in our everyday lives. So to me, this is all quite dystopian in in some way. And, And I guess I wanted to ask you, you know, just to go on from what you were saying, am I justified in feeling a bit pessimistic about this? Or is there a balance here to be struck? I mean, obviously there are opportunities in what you've mentioned, but I think there's something here quite um, uh, scary in some way about just how ubiquitous technology could become in our lives in terms of, you know, us expected to do everything from our homes and that actually barring us from all sorts of other experiences. Yes, I mean, I don't think technology could bar us from other experiences because I think people will still yeah. um, create those other experiences. I think there, there are various different ways to look at this. 
So, yes, you know, people who, who study surveillance and um, inappropriate uses of our data, um, you know, they, they have some very good points, I think, in terms of warning us about the possibilities that are indicated by the power that some of these kind of technology organizations and companies have and how when you harness them, you know, with political power, then yes, I mean, you you can end up with some pretty scary scenarios in terms of the kind of um, surveillance and, and monitoring and potentially social control that could go along with that. So we should be aware of that. But I think we um, there are other sides to this. I, I guess the we need to consider, you know, what what is acceptable to people, what kind of restrictions and regulations might be put in place, and and also to, to gain an understanding of how you know we as researchers might actually become better engaged and better involved in technology design processes in order to ensure that technology is designed and, and are used. Um, in ways that are beneficial to people. So um, we shouldn't, I think, necessarily always assume that um, technology is going to lead us further and further towards a dystopia. But we do need to become engaged in the debates and um, we do need to think about how to get a human perspective on the agenda and how to ensure that um, technology design designers and organizations and companies are actually accounting for that in the way that will most benefit people um, and that will enable our lives to become enriched by technology rather than simply assuming that that a dystopian future is absolutely inevitable because I I don't think it is inevitable. Mm. Well, which leads, I think, to my final question (laughs) to just round off, which is what do you hope to see then in, in our homes of the future if you had to you know, give your vision for, which might be hard, but, you know, say 20, 30 years time. Yes, 20 or 30 years time. That's a wonderful question. Um, And um, actually, one of our projects um, in in the Emerging Technologies Lab is a project called Digital Energy Futures. And um, in that project, we're working with Australian energy companies and Energy Consumers Australia to try to actually understand how we can better um, understand future energy demand by bringing a social sciences perspective to that question. So how can we actually understand how people might live in the future and how people, what what emerging technologies that consume energy um, might people use in the future and how might they use them, how might they want to use them. And so the reason why I'm, I'm mentioning that project is because What's what's really fascinating about it is that um, there are so many really interesting kind of technology design trends and, and kind of predictions made by industry and, and policy makers and the reports that they produce. But there seems, you know, to, to still nonetheless not really exist any really coherent vision that kind of brings together the possibilities of our future homes in a technological sense with the um, the human, our human kind of imaginaries and, and hopes um, for the way we might live in our homes in the futures. And that's one of the things that our project will be kind of seeking to, to achieve. So kind of thinking about that project and what I would like um, the, the future home to be like, I, I think there are many kind of interesting future technologies that um, 
could benefit our homes. And um, we need to see the, the future home as being a place that's environmentally sustainable, a place that's flexible. I would like to see the, the future home to be a, a space of our everyday life within which we, we can be technologically connected to others, but from which we can also be mobile, that we can be connected with other spaces that will enable us to to still benefit from, from being with others in social spaces, in, in workspaces, in creative spaces. I think we, we also might want to think about the materials um, that our future homes will be created from. What kind of materials might we want them to be made from? Um, how might we go about? We will still be living in many of the existing kinds of houses and the existing housing stock as well. I think we're kind of, we're confronted with many interesting possibilities um, in terms of questions around the future of ownership, the future of things, digital things, and, um, and material things as well. I assume that people will want to carry many of their material things with them from the present into their futures. We've already talked about um, the sensory experience and things, the, the textures and of things, the, the the meaning of things and memories that are contained in things and, and in practices and activities that we perform in everyday life. So I think that, you know, what we take on into our future also has to do with the way we want to remember our present, the way we want to remember our past, the way we want to be with people, the way we want to be with things, and, um, and essentially what we want our future home environments to feel like. So maybe that takes us right back to the beginning of our discussion, which is about atmosphere. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Sarah. We sort of came full circle <laughs> right to the beginning. So <laughs> thanks very much. It's been fascinating talking to you and both about the present, but also about these possible futures. Wonderful. Thank you very much. It's been lovely to, to talk to you also and to hear about your experiences and, and your reflections on um, the current context that we're in. A huge thanks to my guest for this episode, Sarah Pink of Monash University, for what I'm sure you'll agree was a really fascinating discussion. In this episode, you also heard the voices of Rebecca Bell and Tiffane Monange, who lent their impressions of home life during lockdown, and we're grateful for their contribution too. If you'd like to contribute to the podcast, get in touch with us by emailing moda at mdx.ac.uk. I'm Anna Baeza, and this podcast is brought to you by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, Middlesex University. For more information about this episode, show notes, and reading lists, please see our website, moda.mdx.ac.uk. We'll be back again with episodes touching on yet more aspects of home life. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.